committed to that I'm visiting and attending. So let me just give you a, a few things quickly uh, of what our vision uh, for Chillicothe Bible Church as leaders and as elders is. First of all, we are committed to being a loving community. And so we uh, want to do things together to build up our relationships one to another and to function as a family. And we have that as a goal, uh, an explicit purpose of what we're doing. We're also committed to uh, helping people uh, to be serious about learning to walk on a daily basis with Jesus. Uh, you know, the spiritual life is a life. It's not just an event where you show up on Sunday and you uh, put in your weekly nod to God and go on, but it's a life that you live, a, a consistent lifestyle of, of prayer and of Bible study and of being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your heart and life. And so we want to help people to encounter that and to experience it. Uh, we're committed to worshiping Jesus uh, and doing so well as a group and as individuals and teaching people how to do that. And we're, uh, we're doing our best to put together a team that is going to help, help you to do that and to model it for you. Because here, as we come together on Sunday morning, this is not, y'all are not the audience. I don't know if you know that. God is the audience, and we are the worshipers, and he is watching us give him praise. And so everything that we do here is devoted to worshiping God because he is the audience for which we as a group, those of us who are up here and those of us who are out there, are performing. He is the audience, and we want to give him honor. And we want to help you to do that. Uh, We want to witness about Jesus. Uh, We want to be among those who are carrying forth the responsibility to tell people about the fact that the Son of God has come into the world and has saved sinners through his death and resurrection, offered them new life and a home in his presence in eternity. Uh, That's the reason we have that wall over there that some of you are looking at that poster and going, what is that? These are the names of people connected to this congregation Uh, who do not know Jesus. And every time that we have an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody and they come to faith in Christ, we put a little gold cross sticker up there next to their name to indicate and remind ourselves that God has been faithful uh, to make sure that his word goes out and does not return void. And so we're committed to witnessing about Jesus. And we're also committed to helping people to work for Jesus, to use their spiritual gifts that every person who is a believer in Christ has, and to utilizing them in a way that builds up the body of Christ. And uh, we saw a demonstration project on that uh, last night. Our fellowship team did a fantastic job. I can't believe what they were able to pull off in four weeks. Uh, In fact, um, I'm still kind of in in shock. Uh, It was amazing, the job that they did. And but but that's an example of the kind of thing that we're hoping that everyone will be able to do as we minister together is to um, is to utilize your spiritual gift, whatever it is uh, to um, somebody has the spiritual gift of making truffles, apparently a little Oreo and cream cheese dipped in chocolate with sugar on top. I mean, hey, um, this is good stuff, right? Somebody but all of these all of these things are what we are committed to as a church of being the church of Jesus Christ. That's what we consider it to mean. 
And we believe that one major component of worshiping God faithfully and truly and walking with Him is learning to know and obey God through the study of His Word. Uh, Some of you who are new with us, maybe some of you who have been here a while may not know that I don't get up here and ramble on as I do simply for my own health. Uh, It is because we are committed to helping people to understand uh, God's Word and how it relates to life so that our lives might be changed. And the story we're going to look at today is Genesis chapter 7 about Noah and the flood. And Pastor Jim and I have joked for several years about top 10 stories of the Bible that you did not learn in Sunday school. Because even as Christians, as people who are committed to the idea that everything in the Bible is true and is God's Word, a lot of times we are selective about what we tell our kids that the Bible teaches. And so we will talk about... For example, uh, we'll talk about Samson and how Samson slew Philistines with a donkey's jawbone and how great that was, but not about the fact that it was done in violation of his vows before God. And we'll talk about how he knocked down the temple of Dagon, which was cool, but not about how he was such an immoral person that he needed to be tied up and blinded and shaved in the first place. We'll talk about how God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because they were wicked, but we won't get into too much detail about the specific nature of their wickedness. And we for darn sure are not going to talk about the Levite and his concubine in uh, Judges chapter 19, where there's a city in Israel called Gibeah that is literally imitating the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we won't do that because we're, uh, we're sure that this is God's Word and everything is God-breathed within it, but we're not sure about Judah and Tamar, whether that's really edifying. And so we're selective in what we tell. But, you know, the interesting thing about this is that, the, first of all, the Scripture says that every word of the Scriptures is inspired by God. Now, that does not mean that every word is equally inspiring to us. Amen? Uh, And a lot of the scriptures are descriptive. This is what happened. They are not prescriptive. This is what you should do. Okay? So just because the Bible records that that Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar had a relationship is not an example for us to follow. All right? But we are to learn every part of the Word of God because it has something that God is trying to teach us through it. And, you know, one of the funny things about that list that Jim and I joke about is this, is that Noah and the flood is not on that list. And in fact, we decorate little kids' nurseries with Noah and the ark, right? You got the little cute furry animals and you got little kind of pot-bellied uh, Noah, you know, is bald and white-haired and little kind of fluffy grandma, Mrs. Noah, there next to him, you know, and all the little cute animals, right? And, and oh, and God saved Noah in the flood. And, and we don't get into what really are the details of that story, that Noah and his family and the cute fluffy animals are the only things that God saves out of the entire world that he destroys, 
And it's, in some sense, sad and frightening what God describes himself doing in Genesis chapter 7. In fact, when my wife and I sat down and we told our son, Nathan, this story, my, my little boy is very much into furry animals, thinks they're all wonderful, and he, he, his eyes well up with tears as we're reading this story out of Genesis, and he goes, does this mean all the baby animals died? Yes, that's what it means. And we're trying to also you know, clarify. Uh, think about the people also. But what about the animals? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, but the people. <laughs> you know, people matter more than animals. You know? I mean, he has this, we have this little bitty fluffy dog, you know, a little miniature dachshund uh, named Sophie. And Sophie is the most precious thing in all of God's creation as far as Nathan is concerned. And so I'm sure he's imagining little animals like Sophie died in the flood. But nevertheless, God has some things that he wants us to know about himself, about sin, about holiness, and about judgment that are here in this passage. And we want to learn them. So we're going to read this story. And you can cross this off your list of things you didn't learn in Sunday school because you're going to learn it here. All right. Uh, the Lord said to Noah, Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take, this, take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals of birds and all of the creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. Now, this is a serious account of a serious event. Last week we saw in, in Genesis 6 that Noah had been given time and he'd been given instructions as to how to build this massive vessel. And now it's time to go because time is getting short before the flood is, come, is going to come. And so God gives his final instructions to Noah right before they enter into the ark. God has been gracious to Noah and Noah has become as a result of God's grace a righteous man in the midst of a wicked and perverse people. And so God, in His grace, is going to save Noah and his family from death and destruction that is about to fall. And so God tells him, you have seven days. Get yourself, your family, your wife, and all of the animals that I'm going to send to you. See, Noah's out, not, not out collecting like some you know, sort of ancient zookeeper. The animals are coming to God, and uh, uh, according to God's command, they're coming to Noah, and he is putting them into the ark. And he's got seven days to get all of that loaded. We're going to 
the plane is going to pull back from the gate here any minute. So you've got seven days to get all of this done. And you may notice here that there's a little more specificity in, his, in God's instructions to Noah than what we saw last week. Because Noah is to take a pair, a male and a female, of all of the unclean animals and seven of all of the clean animals. So in other words, three pairs of clean animals and one extra one. Now, we're going to see next week that one of the reasons you take an extra one is that Noah sacrifices to the Lord these extra clean animals when he gets out of the ark. And you had to have clean animals for sacrifice. Now, a lot of us think this distinction between clean and unclean comes about in Exodus uh, in terms of the Israelite people. But way back with Noah, there's already an understanding because you know, God is not speaking to him in a way he doesn't, he doesn't get clear. You know, if God had said to you, uh, take all the purple animals, and you had to ask, uh, well, what, what, what's purple? Uh, this is something that he already understands, that there's a distinction between animals that are clean and animals that are not. And he used to take seven of them uh, because they are clean for sacrifice, and then later... Um, in Genesis 9, clean for food also. Because up to this time, you're not permitted under God's command to eat any animals. But after the flood, the world is going to be changed. And so God is going to give not just the plants, but also the animals for human beings to eat. And so God has, has given him these instructions, and he's prepared Noah in advance uh, to be able to have the sacrifice that is going to be made afterward. And also he's given him this idea that some of the animals are acceptable and some are not in terms of sacrifice. Um, during these seven days, all these animals are coming to Noah. And I can't imagine what that must have been like. Can you imagine what kind of procession you've got going here? Oh, here come the bears. And here they come. And here's the giraffes and the elephants. And here's the platypus, you know. Um, and, you know, here's the sheep and the cows. And all, all of this stuff is coming. It must have been some sort of a, a strange sight to see. And, of course, this obviously raises some amount of questions, right? I mean, my neighbors notice when I plant different flowers in the yard. <laughs> and all these animals are coming, thousands and thousands of animals. And they all get into the boat. And on the seventh day, just like God said, the rain starts to fall. God keeps his word. Let's continue reading. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. And rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every 
wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. And pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing. As God had commanded Noah, and then the Lord shut him in. For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those with him in the ark. And the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Noah is 600 years old. He was 500 years old when the flood came. He would have been about 480 uh, when he was told by God to build this ark. He has his sons at 500, at 600, flood water come. And the Bible says that the springs of the great deep burst forth. Now, the Bible is not a science textbook, although everything that it says is consistent and true. And when all the facts are in, will be consistent with science, true science. And that's an ancient Hebrew way of saying, I think, that there is a massive cataclysm. And there is a level of seismic activity and tectonic movement that we have never seen since then. For example, we know that parts of the earth that are now underwater, once upon a time, were above ground. Because we are drilling for oil, which is produced by dead stuff that used to be alive. We're drilling for oil underneath the ocean floor. Right? So obviously that part of the world used to be above water once upon a time. Uh, and we know that the, that the entire earth used to all have one continent, not seven that all those were together. And there's a massive cataclysm that takes place. And so places that were mountainous are now underwater. And places that probably weren't mountainous once upon a time now are. And everything shifts around and moves. And the entire surface of the earth is covered in water because God sends water from above and he sends water from underneath the earth, which, by the way, there is a lot of water underneath the surface of the earth. In fact, we sit in this area on one of the biggest aquifers in the country. All of this water, 
and God puts the earth back, in a sense, to the way it was in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. You remember that verse? It says, the earth was formless and void, and the darkness was over the surface of the waters. Right? You have this watery, formless, no land visible, wet ball. And the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the water. And God has essentially taken everything that he made in the seven days of creation and wiped it out and destroyed it. And everything, even the mountains, are covered 20 feet deep. Now, I don't, I'm not a geologist. I don't, I'm not a meteorologist. I don't know how all that works. But here's what I know that the God who is powerful enough to create the earth is powerful enough to destroy the earth, and he does. And everything on that planet died, everything. All of the animals, all of the reptiles, all of the insects, all of the people perished in the wrath of God. And God himself, the text says, sealed them into this boat. He is protecting Noah and his family for 40 days and 40 nights it rains. And we're getting a little rain, I think, today. We're not talking about the kind of rain that the text is talking about here for 40 days and 40 nights, meaning it never stopped. 24 hours a day, it's raining. I have been, I was in Louisiana uh, a number of years ago, and we did not know this, but as we started to drive through, we were driving into a hurricane. This was not among my brighter moments as a husband. (laughs) Um, But we were driving into a a hurricane coming across the Gulf Coast, and there was, we'd been at the beach all week. And we didn't watch the news. They didn't even have a TV where we were. <laughs> and so here comes the, the flood. And water is coming down, I kid you not, 13 inches an hour. It's a lot of rain. <laughs> um, however fast your wipers move is not fast enough. All right? There is a lot of water. And, and, and so when I am reading this, what I'm imagining is that rain happening 24-7 for 40 days, and it floods the entire planet, and everything dies. Everything. It's a devastating flood. And we don't know how tall the mountains were in those days. We know how tall the mountains are today, but we don't know how tall the mountains were then because, again, I think the earth looked different than it looks now. We know that it once upon a time, looked different than it looks now. And so how tall are the mountains? How, how, mu- how much water is there? Beats me. Don't know. But what we do know is, is that however tall they are, they're covered. And so there's no escape for anything. Everything died. Read this verse with me, verse 21. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. 
birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. Verse 22, everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Verse 23, every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out, men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. This is a terrible, terrible, awful, horrible, give me another adjective, judgment of God. And it tells us that God is absolutely, completely, unalterably holy, and He will not permit sin to go unpunished forever. If you get nothing else out of four chapters of Noah as we're sitting here together and talking about God's Word, get this in lights. God does not allow sin to go unpunished forever. He will not, He has not, He does not allow sin to go unpunished forever. And so in those days or in those moments when you have one of these thoughts, I'll do this and it won't make any difference even though I know it's wrong. Remember Noah. God will not let sin go unpunished forever. Or in those moments when, on the other hand, you have had great evil done to you, as sometimes happens, in a sinful world full of sinful people who are corrupt, sometimes great evil befalls you and you cry out to God, Oh God, how long, like the psalmist says, do you see violence and you do not intervene? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Well, guess what? God did rend the heavens and his judgment did come down. And it will one day again. Three things I want us to see out of this passage. Number one, sin is serious. It is serious. A lot of times we don't think that sin is all that serious. And so we read Genesis 7 and we're kind of shocked, actually, when we really look at it. Because we don't think that sin is really that serious. We think it's kind of cute, actually. You know, we joke about it sometimes and laugh about it. And, oh, well, that's just them. That's just their quirks. That's just their idiosyncrasies. Well, everybody messes up sometimes, and after all, Pastor, nobody's perfect. All of which is true. No one is perfect. There is only one who is perfect, Jesus. And everybody else, in terms of God's judgment, is wicked. But it's not cute, it's not funny, it's forevermore serious. And God is serious about dealing with it. That's number two. God is serious about eliminating sin. Sin is so serious you can't flirt with it, you can't um, play with it, you can't mess around with it. It's serious. 
and God is serious about eliminating it. You know, we we don't really, most of us, believe that sin is that big a deal. And so we, we sort of arrogantly assume that God shares our viewpoint on these things. And so then we find it completely incomprehensible when we come to the New Testament and we meet Jesus and he says things like this, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Better to enter life half blind than to have two eyes and go into hell. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Because it's better to enter life crippled than to have two hands and go into hell. If your foot causes you to stumble, saw it off. Because it is better to enter life maimed than to have two feet and walk your way into hell. God is completely serious about sin. And he is completely serious about eliminating it. And I've said it this last week. I will say it again this week. There are only two ways that God deals with sin. And you are going to pick one. One one of these or the other. You are either going to remain an enemy of God and a sinner before him. And you are going to experience God's judgment. Or through the grace of God, you're going to be... You're going to become friends with God through the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, shed on your behalf, and believe in the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead, become friends with God, and have your sin dealt with in Jesus instead of in you. But God is going to deal with sin one way or the other. His wrath is either poured out in Jesus on your behalf, or it's poured out on you on your behalf. But somebody is going to cry out, I thirst, either Jesus or you. And if it's you, it's going to be in hell where you say, somebody touch my tongue with a little bit of water because I am in agony in this fire, as the rich man said in the parable Jesus told. Or Jesus is going to cry out from the cross on your behalf, I thirst. And we have to make a choice, which it's going to be. I hope to God that you have picked the right one. Because God is serious about eliminating sin. I pray that every person here would say there's only one way out of this. There is only one provision made. There's only one ark to get into. There's only one pathway to God, and it's the one that Jesus himself identified. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so it's either Jesus or death. Jesus' death or yours. But God is serious about eliminating sin. And he is going to have on this earth a holy people for himself, one way or another. Last thing, write this down. Since sin is serious and God is serious about eliminating it, then we as people 
better get serious about God and his word and the lost world around us. Luke 17, this is what Jesus said, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the day of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Here's the deal. We do not know what day Jesus is coming back. And we do not know, therefore, what day judgment is coming on this sinful world with him. But we do know that we have a responsibility in the meantime to be ourselves as believers in Christ, getting ready for the return of Christ so that we can receive him with joy. And also being like Noah, a preacher of righteousness, going out into the lost world and telling people, look, the flood is going to come. God's justice will roll down like a river, and if you are not in the boat, you are going to drown in it. And you've got to make your choice, and you need to get serious about sharing that with people. I am very proud of, the, of our church and the fact that we are committed to outreach at this church, that we are committed to God and His Word and the gospel specifically, because it is the thing which gives life to men and women and children all over the world. And I'm glad that we are committed to sharing it. But here's the thing, guys. We don't know how much time we got. And one of the things that God as our groom would have us do while we wait for his return is to be serious about announcing the fact that God is righteous, that sin is serious, and that apart from God's grace that they're going to be wiped out in God's wrath. Because we are like Noah and his family. We are among the relative remnant of people on this planet who have been given grace. We have been shown favor. God's steadfast love has come to us, and we are the ones whom God is going to rescue from his judgment. But we also have a responsibility to be carrying the message of how to escape and how to have it be a situation where when Christ comes, that we receive him with joy. I shared in my Sunday school class this morning this, this image, and I think it's a good one. For we who are believers in Christ, this is what Jesus' return is like. It is like if you are a wife or a husband whose spouse is in the military. Now, I've never been in the military, but I have family who are, know a lot of military people, greatly respect their sacrifice on behalf of our country. But these men and women go to some of the worst places in the world and serve faithfully for our, on behalf of our country. But they may be gone nine months, a year, 18 months, two years, you know, World War II, four years if you made it all the way start to finish. And in the meantime, your loved one is waiting for you at home. And as I've talked with my sister-in-law, as my brother-in-law is, is deployed all over the world flying these planes, 
there's a little flexibility in when he's going to be back. Well, when's he coming home? Well, maybe today. And his kids ask, was daddy coming home today? Well, we heard maybe today. And so they, they're getting ready, and they're anticipating his coming. His daddy is coming home. And she is looking for the day when my groom is going to arrive back at my door. And if it's not today, well, then we're going to get ready, and we're going to stay ready until tomorrow because my groom is coming home. And if it's not tomorrow, well, then the next day, well, I know he's coming. We're going to get ready for him to be here. And then when the reunion happens, there is just this mushy puddle of wonderful joyous emotion and hugging and celebration, right? Why? Because the one for whom I longed to come home has come home to me. And Jesus is returning for us soon. But wouldn't it be great if, first of all, that we were ready for his return so that when he got there, there was a celebration and we could receive him with joy because the church is the bride of Christ and one day our groom will come for us. And on top of that, wouldn't it be great since God allows us the privilege of participating with him in sharing the gospel, if there were more people who were part of the bride because you brought them in by the grace of God. Let's pray.